Ochoa. I feel like we haven't spoken, even though we did a podcast last week. I feel like we haven't chatted too much. We've been on break. We all just kind of disengaged. We all talked to each other too much. We're just like, nope, no more, right? But I have a question for you today. My question is, it's, it's a simple one, but it's one that I think is, it's on my mind because we're, we're walking back into a teacher workday tomorrow. We get kids back on Wednesday and we have three days with kids. Then we have a weekend coming up. When you have a weird week like this, when you're looking at your workshop of Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday only after a two-week break, what is it that you're trying to accomplish in such an awkward amount of time? When you think about what you want to do in your workshop for those three days to make sure that you're off and running on that Monday coming up, what is it that you're, how, what's your thought process on what you're trying to get done in, in such a weird amount of time? Well, first of all, it depends on when that weird amount of time shows up. That has a lot to do with it. But in this case, our weird amount of time is at the beginning of a semester. So first of all, uh, my plan or what I want to get down is more writing. So I'll probably do quite a few uh, topic starters. Uh, follow up on any kind of craft or draft type notebook situation, like make sure, you know, I don't know how many kids that are going to be new or changes. And so I'll address those on that first few days and then, or that first day. And then from there, I really want them to have some writing from, for this semester are in their thing, but I'm not, I don't like to do like, what did you over the holidays or whatever? I, I, I pretty much keep this open ended. So it would be uh, open type questions. It, I might even do a sentence starter, like a sentence stub or something, and then they finish it and take off there. Just let them write freely, especially if I don't have very many changes and I have all my students back, then that would definitely be uh, one day where they can just write. So I like to do that. As far as the reading goes, uh, I look at the unit that we have to be doing, and I'm thinking on a short short week, we probably don't want to get into that unit big time until like that next week. So this is a great time to make sure that I do some front-loading for any kind of unit that might be coming up. Uh, I might be finding some uh, nonfiction articles to go with anything that we're doing. I think we're about to do a little bit of drama. So whatever topics those are about, then I'm going to be looking up uh, maybe thematically some nonfiction pieces and some poetry that we might could share in there to front load for my students. But mainly I want reading and writing, uh, reestablishing my expectations. And uh, so I'll be doing that in these short weeks, but usually our short week so, uh, and I let them read. So there might be a day where they just read for half the day and write for half the day, probably knowing me. I don't, I don't really, <laughs> I don't, I just, I just find it a time to kind of front load, get them back into the workshop and give them a chance to really work without me interfering too much. And I love it. That's Pamela Chom, Jacob Chastain. We're two English teachers down here in the state of Texas doing reading and writing workshop. Craft and Draft is our journal system, our philosophy on how to implement systems that don't restrict the workshop teaching. You can find previous episodes, if you're new to the podcast, all about where we explain the Craft and Draft podcast. In this episode, ladies and gentlemen, on our episode back, it's the new year, it's 2022, we're about to jump back in uh, to the school life, uh, but we're answering a listener question, a long time listener. Uh, we'll read it in just yeah, a minute, you. but mm-hmm. yeah, we'll be jumping into that. But she, it, it's a question that it's about one of our previous episodes, but it really is going to force us to go back into how do we structure our mini lessons? Where do we get our ideas from and everything in between? Um, so stay tight for that, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to dive really deep into this question. But before we do that, Miss Ochoa, I have right. some news I want to share with you. And okay. you don't check social media, so I have to Not share enough. this in person <laughs> via the podcast because oh, you're you're okay. doing other things. So this I thought this was really cool. So I did a by the way, for people that are like, you know, Jacob always says, you know, message craft and draft at the face at the page or 
him on social media? It's because you don't really use social media and I do. So <laughs> it's really not me just trying to hoard questions or anything like that. It's really, I'm not like a dragon in the Hobbit just trying to hoard all the gold. It, it's just because it's right. just the roles we play. Pam is the brains and I well, am the grunt I'm kind work. Well, I'm kind of uh, older too. And- <laughs> There's no excuse because some of them, I mean, I was, I, I was staying with my mom and dad because, you know, I've been taking care of my mom. She had surgery. So, but I was watching them. I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm, um, we're all in the same room together. And I thought we were having a conversation and then they both got kind of really quiet. So I kind of noticed they were both on their phones doing their social media. So my, my parents do social media way more than I do. I said, what did y'all do? We had a nice conversation about what did they do when they were their parents, you know, when they were my age or actually 20 and there was no social media. I'm like, what did y'all do? What did your parents do? Because I think at this age, looking at y'all and you looking at your parents, I don't think was the same experience. I mean, they probably, parents, I feel like they read the newspaper, right? I, I feel well, like- we did. We had to talk about that. Uh, I So I got to hear about what every one of my grandparents did, their grandparents did. And so it was kind of cool, but they talked about which ones listened to the radio, which ones played crossword puzzles. Uh, which ones um, gardened all the time. I don't have that person's gene. I needed to hone that gene in there since I'm a failed gardener. But anyway, but uh, so I don't know. That's what they used to do. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know how y'all have made it all these years without social media. Because believe me, they do social media. That's so funny. Well, you know, and it's it's very ubiquitous, and I'm on it probably more than I should be. But you, you consider yourself lucky that you're not one of the addicted people to it because um, it's rough out there. But in any case, you don't check yes. your stuff. So I tag you Enough. things, and it doesn't matter, but I did it anyway. <laughs> but here's the thing. So now go for, ahead and tag me. You never know. For, you never know much, me, much change tomorrow. So teach me teacher. I did, uh, for the, I've never done this before, but I decided to do it. I think I'm going to go back and retroactively do this for each year of the show, but I did a top episodes of 2021 of teach me teacher. And it was so funny to look at because number one was my episode with Eric Weinstein, which is obvious. He's the biggest guest I've ever had on. He's been, I mean, the guy's well, been on, well, go ahead. No, that was a good one. I did I did listen to that. That's really well, good. Keep going. I can see why that's a big one. Yeah, I mean it, it, he's also that that came that was episode 200. I think I'm on like 240 something of the show. So, it wasn't even that long ago and it's my biggest episode of all time. So, it's like I knew that was going to be number 1, but I really didn't know what the other ones would be because other than checking like my stats like every once in a while, I really don't look at like Per episode necessarily. So I, I pulled up the data and I did it by the year. And our my number two released episode of Teach Me Teacher this year was the intro to the craft and draft model that we did that I just reposted to Teach Me Teacher wow. towards the beginning of the year. That was the number two. Number two. Behind most downloaded, Eric? Yes. Oh my gosh. You know, we're craft on and draft. Basis. Eric doesn't even know me. You know what's even more, it was more shocking is I'm convinced, like, I'm always convinced that people don't want to listen to me. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know why, like, I, I have a podcast, I, well, I have two podcasts, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I just, I'm convinced that, like, people listen to Teach Me Teacher for other people. Like, they don't really care about my opinion. And I do solo episodes very rarely. Like, I just kind of don't, unless, like, the my New Year's resolutions episodes or whatever. But number three was my intro to writing workshop, which was part two of an intro to reading workshop that I did when I had a listener come on and ask me questions for, like, two hours about both. And I oh. never released... I didn't release the writing one because I had a Patreon at the time. It was it was a hot mess. But and I released it later because I just had this hour episode about writing workshop, or it was a little bit longer than that. And I was like, oh, I'll just release this because it's kind of just sitting here and I'm sure people would be interested. It was number three. So it goes Eric Weinstein, Craft and Draft, and then Writing Workshop. And I was like, I had no idea. So it, it made me feel a little bit better. I'm like, maybe people don't get annoyed 
by me as much as I think they do, but I'm not going to let it go to my head because the, we had some other fan, like uh, Krista St. Germain was on there and uh, Lorena Harman, both of her episodes, who was my season opener for season six, were the top. Right. She Both of them got on there. That's not always That's the case. Awesome. Sometimes part one or part two does better. So anyway, craft and draft number two. Can you believe it? That was wild. Excited about it. That's exciting. No, yeah, I did very- not realize that. I, I had no idea Pretty either. Awesome. It was it was so funny to see. I was like, well, I mean, you can't ask for a better thing. No, nope. I mean, you sure second, can't. Second podcast takes up that time, so that's cool. That's that's pretty awesome. Anyway, I wanted thanks to for sharing that. that. Yeah, Woo-hoo. well, thanks. I mean, I'm, I think a lot of people uh, came over here from that episode. Um, we were not lost on the bump that we got around that time, so I guess um, it works. So if people are here from Teach Me Teacher, hi. Um, but yeah. it was cool. It was cool. But all right, let's get awesome. to Leah's question because yeah. Leah is a longtime listener. Um, I've talked to her several times, but she sent us mm-hmm. a, a nice long email that I cut down. Hopefully Leah doesn't mind me, uh, but I, I did cut down um, just a little bit just to trim it up because she gives a lot of backstory, uh, which was awesome for us, but it would take forever to read. Uh, so it was, I trimmed it down. Hopefully I didn't miss any of the key details, but the questions are still there and I left enough backstory for hopefully to fill in for mm-hmm. listeners, but already Leah, let's answer your question. She says, I have been trying to take time to write you this since your episode on where you get your lessons. If I remember correctly, that episode was in response to a listener's question. It was, I understood where she came from and have been thinking a lot about this. I have been gravitating a lot to strategy, many lessons, and my mentor texts have been small examples, whatever strategy I have been using. They have been short excerpts that the students and I annotate together based on the strategy and haven't been longer texts that we can really dive into and analyze. The strategies have mostly come from Jennifer Saravalo's Writing Strategies book or Ralph Fletcher's Craft Lessons books. I realized while listening to that podcast that I am relying so much on these resources because I teach writing to 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. I have one 6th grade class, two 7th grade, and two 8th grade. It's so much easier just to look up a strategy that I see could be beneficial to each class based on what I see in the conferences. Strategies just transfer easily to students writing on different levels. I want to do more of what you and Pam do in your classes, though. I want to expose the students to as much different type of writing as I can, and that will hopefully inspire the students to think on a deeper level about why they make the authorial decisions they do. My trepidation of this type of teaching, exploring craft moves instead of falling back on strategies, is the amount of time to find really cool, relevant mentor text. I do use Reef's Quick Writes Handbook, but that is more limited than what I'm envisioning because it is largely narratives and poetry, and I want informative and argumentative examples as well. I think these issues are what that listener is trying to get at when she asked you that question, or at least they're the issues that I have. So she says, I have two questions with all of this. She says, with your genre study, which we've talked about in previous episodes, did you make many lessons on each text and then move on to the next one? Or did you show all three examples up front and compare their approaches from the get-go? Number two, other than reading books and making note of lessons that could come from what I'm reading, do you have any other advice for finding texts and structuring many lessons? Thank you so much for all you do. I really mean it. All right. So there's a lot here to unpack Miss Ochoa. Um, and we want to, and we want to do uh, service. You take the time to write us something big. We spend an episode diving into all of your uh, thoughts and ideas and everything else. So I think this, first of all, let's give some backstory on this genre study, just in case there's anyone new listening, maybe they missed an episode, but we have, we, we do genre studies a, a few different ways. I think what she's referring to primarily here is kind of the multi-genre approach um, that I kind of push for um, something like argumentative. You can do it in any genre. I like doing an argumentative because uh, we can broaden it. But for people who are unfamiliar, I have this kind of unit that I play with and restructure all the time. But it is, and we're going to do it here in just a few weeks, actually, for this six weeks. So maybe we'll have a follow-up for it. But essentially, it works like this. 
we look at the standards for argumentative uh, that we need to hit. And then I showed them how argument can exist in an actual argumentative essay. I showed them how it can exist in a poem and I show them how it can exist in a short story. And then I let students, once we analyze each of these and go through them and do everything I need to do kind of on the reading side and taking notes for the writing side, I empower them to go forth, pick an argument they want to make about the world or an idea or something. They choose their genre appropriate for it based on our conversations, and that's what they do. And then the first time I did this, uh, I didn't tell them I was going to do this, but when they finished one, I said, okay, now you're going to pick a second one because <laughs> they, 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 they're they going to gravitate towards the one that they feel most comfortable with. And so I think having them do two at the minimum uh, really does push uh, writers to think uh, just a little differently, get get a little bit outside of their comfort zone. So I think I feel like that is a, a healthy overview of this, but I'm going to let you talk about another version of this type of genre study for, so that's kind of like my argumentative one that we talked about in that podcast, but we've done a poetry genre study and I think you went deeper than I did. So could you lay out just how that genre study, how you took that, um, before we answer her questions, how that worked out before we went to break? I wanted them to end with a product. And so Uh, that they could take with them. And that product turned out to be an anthology. So I took that moment to teach them all about anthologies. And what we did is I had the students, we went through several anthologies. It probably went a little more than a mini lesson. So it probably was a little maxi lesson, if you will. It didn't take the whole period, but uh, I did pick, I had them, I've done it two ways. This time, just because of time, I, I, and because of the amount that we did not have, what, I'm I'm kind of losing this here, but let me go back. I've done this type of thing before. And when I did it before, that particular librarian that I had in the school loved poetry and had this huge, huge poetry shelf of just, I mean, a whole lot of poetry anthologies. And so uh, I was able to let the kids just pick any kind of book and browse through. So I had nothing to do with the selection. Here, in this case, uh, this particular year, I didn't have that option. I mean, we had poetry. The kids got to see some of that. We did a book tasting with poetry anthologies, but there weren't really as many as I was hoping, um, just for whatever reason. And so I pulled some of my own, and then we went through and looked at at the ones that that I had access to. And then the students made a list, in both cases, made a list of the things that they observed that each book had. And so based on that, that's how we created our product, was the students made an observation from several, several uh, anthologies to determine what needed to be in their anthology. And so that's how we created that system. But as far as um, different, and this is where you and I, you you said I went down a rabbit hole, by the way, but uh, I wanted them to know more than they've ever learned before. So one of the things that they they knew haiku, I kind of did a little survey, uh, not a physical survey, but just surveyed my class you know, and made observations and uh, by them showing their hands and things like that. But who knew what haiku was? And, you know, so I went through some of the forms and when I got to some of the forms they didn't know, I included some of those like sonnet, things like that. So I included some of those. And then what I would do is as my mini lessons came in is I would show them some skills lessons, but I'd also have some genre lessons or sonnet or form type lessons that they would, they would do. And then from there, they would try it on their own. So I, my question here, and I think this will shape as we answer um, her two big questions, but I feel like this conversation, and this is something that honestly, we talk a lot about it just with us in general, Mm -hmm. it's something that I often mention because it comes up so often in teaching, but really, I feel like this conversation has to deal so much with strategies versus craft or strategy versus um, practice. And, and what is a strategy in teaching? What is what does a strategy do? How does strategies help students? How do they hinder students? And I feel like I think we should address that first because and it might help terms as well, because when I think strategy, like let, let's do reading, for example, I know we're talking about writing, but just for reading. So when I think of strategy, I think of, um, 
uh, any strategy that allows kids to annotate with with a little bit more focus, right? We have mm-hmm. TP cast if people want to, you know, for um, poetry, which we don't use. <laughs> but um, our, uh, for people can't see her, but Pam almost had a heart attack. She's like, no, not TP cast. Which well, that might I, be fun. I just, I've seen, I don't mind the, the idea of TP cast for those of yeah. you who love TP cast. It's just, I've seen it kill poetry for students. Yeah. And so here, and that's a perfect segue into Mm -hmm. where I kind of wanted to go with that, which is strategies are great. Strategies exist for a reason. Strategies Mm -hmm. are really good for getting kids to remember certain things or to, or to internalize certain concepts, right? This is why we have kids rhyme at early ages because things in sing song help kids rhyme a little bit better. That's why all of this stuff exists. However, I feel like once we reach secondary classrooms and probably even uh, upper elementary, I mean, really younger elementary too, but definitely secondary is we have this, we over strategy everything because we feel like we have to constantly uh, give kids some type of tool in order to do something. Does that make sense? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like we can't be like, no, you can't just write an intro. You have to have this acronym in order to write an intro. You can't just read this short story and talk about why it's effective or not effective. You have to have this strategy that forces you to think about these specific things. And the more I teach and the more I live in the workshop realm, I come to realize that I go to strategy last. I see what they can do in a mini lesson first. Can we read this and have a good conversation about figurative language, both on the reading side and the writing side? And then if they can't, maybe that's when I pull in a strategy that allows us to scaffold a little bit to break down some concepts. But I go lesson first, concept first, and then if I need to, I bring in the strategy, but they already have it. What The only thing, that giving them another acronym to remember, another strategy to do, whether it's something from the wonderful Jennifer Saravalo or Jeff Anderson, who has tons of strategies or something from teachers pay teachers doesn't matter if, if, if they can already do it, doesn't matter how good the strategy is, who cares? Right. And so mm-hmm. I feel like we have this in, in education. I feel like we just, we over use strategies and it just clogs up the brain. And I feel like it gets kids, it gets kids more into the school of reading and writing versus the actual doing of reading and writing. And that's what I'm always wary of. If the strategy is more important than, than what's being done, if it's more important than the reading and the writing, then you've lost the point of the strategy. Well, that's always been my take on it as far as, I mean, cause if you're, if it becomes about, did you do the strategy right? And, you know, that's, that's where that yeah. TP cast, uh, for example, since you brought that one up and that's where you, um, you treat every poem like it follows this, um, prescription and not every poem follows the prescription exactly in the order that TP cast occurs. Now, granted, does it have all those parts? Probably, but I think we're setting the students up to thinking that every poem has to follow that kind of sequence, and not not every poem goes as deep as TP Cast wants them to. So I think I think um, gosh, sometimes it's just a poem's there just to have fun, not necessarily to analyze. Just ask Robert Frost. I think he had some kind of comment about that one time. <laughs> about his poetry because I don't even know what it means. You know what? That's not what I had said, you know, that kind well, of thing. Well, when so, Billy Collins, he has oh, that poem yeah. about, you know, tying it to a chair and trying to get a confession out of it. And, you know, that's a perfect example right. of someone who has obviously experienced people teaching his poetry or whatever. And he's like, well, you know, sometimes I write about like the, the moon and it's just about the moon. Like it's not some archetype. It's not anything like this. And, and I think English teachers know this, but you know, it's when we're having these lessons when we're like, okay, we need students to walk away with something. You know, it's my question is if you're using a strategy you have to go, why am I using this strategy? And if the answer has nothing to do with 
you know that they need scaffold in this situation, then I think you shouldn't start with strategy. Does that make sense? I mean, do yeah. you, when do you, when do you throw in a strategy? Well, I, I kind of throw in a strategy if I'm working with a specific small group, like you said, that can't, that, that they're having trouble inferencing. So I need to find a strategy that might help them inference. They're having trouble asking their own questions. So I might uh, pull in a strategy for how to answer question the text. But that doesn't mean that uh, I have other students that question it just fine and can think probably deeper about it than I do sometimes. So I don't think I need to bog them down um, with going through the motions of annotating and doing all that. If they don't need it, they don't need it. So I think my job as a teacher is to find out what they do need and provide those opportunities to do that. Now, sometimes a whole class needs help. If the whole class needs help after all of my assessments, then I know. For example, we did the um, the summary strategy that our partner did. You know, y'all got really, you know, when we did that test, remember, I was the one that chose not to do that particular uh, strategy where you take notes on your stuff a certain way and, you know, the grid, the cross grid or whatever, the graph, and I chose not to do it and I had a low, low area. So because that was low and it was a little across the board for me, I turned around and taught that strategy to everybody because it looked like everybody needed it after my results. Well, on the next test that we did, guess what? My kids did really well on that, but that's because I made sure I taught that strategy, but I didn't teach it first. I taught it once I realized they didn't have it. And so well, that's kind of how I dealt that, with that. That strategy is a perfect example of we kids struggle with answering summary questions on test because summary questions are atrocious and it has the most reading and all of this other stuff. So there's, there's a million reasons why kids struggle with that. So we give them a strategy, right? And it's just something that get, it's augmenting what they're doing. And I feel like in reading and writing specifically, especially in the workshop, kids have to read and write to understand what that is. It sounds like it's small, but if you don't finish books, if you don't finish short stories, if you don't finish poems, like if you don't go through that reading process to understand the waxing and waning of the energy of a novel or a graphic novel or a comic book or anything like that, you are never really going to understand plot. And we, 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 there's teachers out there who take the best readers and force them to follow strategies when they're reading 90 books a year, it seems like for a lot of them. And then they, and then the strategies hurt the reader because they start overthinking stuff. Cause a lot of this is just teaching students how to interact with these, with words to experience this. And you can't reading and writing is, is, is experiential. You have to go through it in order to know how to go through it, right? And we have strategies to help when kids get lost. We have decoding strategies with words. We have strategies in terms of this is kind of a basic outline of an essay or a poem. But to force that strategy first, I feel like we're robbing them of that experiential aspect of this, which is this is what a short story is. I mean, how many times have you done a short story in your class, Ochoa? And it ends and students goes, where's the rest? Right. And it's like, no, that's the story. Like that's this, the this, story. this yeah. is what short stories do. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's no more, but you have to yeah. experience that. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, too. I mean, um, I think the best strategy is Laura Robb's read alouds. I mean, I think if you're really going to, work with the kids and guide the students. I think a read aloud where they, where you actually go through your own thought process with a short text and you ask questions, but you do it as if you're the reader and you're telling the students, I'm setting the stage here. I'm going to read this. And my thoughts as I read are what I want you to pay attention to, because this is what it sounds like to actually read. And so what's in my head. So the read aloud is so that the students can hear my thoughts as I'm reading out loud. 
And so I pause every once in a while and I might ask a question for the uh, the text. I might pause and go back and reread. Oh, my, I don't understand that word. I need to go look that one up. And so I do that, but I don't do it for a lengthy amount of time. I do it for many less than amount of time with a short, shorter piece. And, uh, but I'm actually showing the students how to do that by doing it for them. And to me, that's the best way to go about it. So let's let's go back and look at these questions because I feel like that I wanted to address the strategy idea first because it's where uh, a lot of people camp out. It's where a lot of people don't move on. Um, they're powerful, but they don't need to exist at all times. Sometimes you got to let kids read and write. So I think it, it would almost do better if we answered um, Leah's questions backwards. Because our first question talks about genre study and how we do mini lessons, text, and move on from there. But her second question is about other than reading books and making notes on lessons that could come from what I'm reading, do you have any other advice for finding text and structuring mini lessons? So let's go back to this idea of we have a concept, right? We want to teach uh, argument or we want to teach poetry. Well, she says nonfiction specifically. So let's stay away from, uh, the, the fluffy subjects as if you will. So we talk about, uh, so if we want to teach kids how to write an argument, um, where do we get those things? And my, I mean, here's the thing. Like I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm uh, reticent to say this because I feel like, it might disappoint Leah, but I don't have a bank that of things that I go to. I, we've talked about the Quick Rights book by Linda Reef, and there, there's various other things that exist out there. Um, but I don't have a bunch of these. Like I have some on my Google Drive, but I mean, I, this might be hard to believe, but I literally redo all my lessons every year. There's very few texts that. I use every single year. And oftentimes, sometimes I'll use a text for a different reason, right? And I just kind of do that. So what my thinking is, is I always go standard. I go, what do kids need to know? And then we go, okay, in reading, what does this look like for the test? And then we broaden that and go, how can we get kids to experience this on the reading side? And then how can we do the other side of the coin by having kids write this because if they can write a genre uh, well, they can understand that genre while they're reading. It gives them um, it gives them more insight into why the author did something. It gives them more insight into word choice and everything else. Right? We know this. This is why craft and draft exist. The reading and the writing are always paired together as much as possible. So we go standard. Then we go. What does the test look like? And then we go. Okay. So how do we get from where we are to where we need to be? And what does this look like? in writing. And from there, I simply, (laughs) I guess it may not be that simple is sometimes I do scroll through like my Google drive of random things I have found, but let's say that doesn't exist, right? Let's take that out of the equation. What I would do is I would first search up, um, news that's actually just going on, right? Current events. News ELA is perfect for this. Um, I don't like News ELA in terms of like actual article quality. Some of their stuff is good. Um, and I, I do use it all the time. I think it's a great resource. Uh, but I think it's in terms of writing well, uh, I think they have kind of not that great of articles there. It's more newsy and less argumentative, so to speak. So what I'll do though, is I'll use that as like my touchstone. I'm like, Oh, this is happening, right? It'll remind me because they're so good at current events. And then I'll go look up an article and I will literally take an article from the Atlantic New York times or whatever. And I'll, copy paste it into a Google doc. And sometimes the articles find on its own. A lot of the times, if I'm taking it from a place like that, they will have their language is too advanced. So what I'll do is I adapt it for my readers. I do the exact same thing. New ZLA does when you use that little top bar and you say, I need to change my Lexile number. I do that myself. I cut out paragraphs. I do whatever. And then when I, the way I cite it is I just say by the New York times, whoever the author was adapted by Jacob Chastain. Like I literally just kind of put it all on there and I adapt it for my class. And that's what we study. And that is where I have gotten a lot of my arguments. I've also gone to, I think it's debate.org maybe debate. 
Dot org, yes. Um, no. Both sides? Two sides? Whatever it is. Hang on. I don't think it's debate on This looks funny to me. Why does this look funny? Opinions. Not reading it right. No, it's just... Hang on. No, it's not debate. It's like controversial issues here. I'm going to have to look it up in a minute for everyone, but there's another site. I'm going to let you talk in a second. I'm going to find that website, but I'll go to those. Oh, pro con. That's what it is. It is pro con.org. I was so close, but pro con.org is this has everything under the sun. Now you have to be careful, obviously, because they have everything from like, you know, schools should have uh, uniforms to, Marijuana should be legal everywhere, right? So you have to, you kind of have to, you know, pick the topics that you want. I wouldn't send kids to this website um, unless you're teaching older kids, obviously. But uh, it's great because you can actually pull. Uh, not all of it's good. You have to be your own curator of this stuff. But let's say you want, like, there's a topic on here. It says new topics. It says private prisons, artificial intelligence, space colonization, pit bull bands, right? That's just the four that are listed here. There's a lot of variety of there, right? So what I would do is I would click on that topic, and it literally gives you pro-con like writing that people have done and some of them are short and some of them are academic, but I would literally take those and I would let kids read them. Uh, the ones that are quality and we would analyze them for what we need to. Are they using any type of argumentative stances? Are they using, you know, eat those pathos logos? Are they doing anything like that? And we would analyze it and figure out what makes an argument well or good what makes it not so good? What do we like about this argument? Was there an argument that struck you as interesting, even though you were on one side? And, you know, obviously this gets better if students, if you know students are passionate about something, like super passionate about like, uh, like uh, cancel, or cancel culture, for instance. That's another list I was looking on here. Or homework. Um, like there's a lot of them, standardized tests, school vouchers. I don't know if your kids will know a lot about vouchers, but you can bring these in there. Kids are excited. Let them analyze it and then play with it. And that's where I get my stuff is I literally go, what do I need to do? What does it look like? And then I think, okay, what, what are my kids going to be into? And I find it like, I, I don't have a bank. I mean, I have a little one, but it's not really, I don't use it that often. I just go here and I go, what do I need to do? Like, and I go from there. I've been on my soapbox, to be fair. Miss Ocho was like coughing over there with her mic muted. So people think I was talking long. <laughs> it's <laughs> really, I was me. doing her a favor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was kind of trying to get it under control. Kind of got under the weather a little bit. So where, where do you now, get your stuff, Ochoa? Where do I get my stuff? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I know that's not a good answer, is it? <laughs> Probably, Leah, not the answer you were hoping for. Uh, I think I, I get my stuff kind of in a similar way. I have been known at times to go for to go for generalizations or, or uh, you know, like like dreams or uh, challenges or changes. So sometimes you can find a lot of stuff around a central idea like that. So um, I, I might look up. Something like um, honor, for example. What is honor? And then from there, I might find you know articles that deal with art, you know, with honor, like maybe articles uh, from the past from people that were maybe heroes from the past, things like that. So it would just depend on what I wanted to do. So sometimes I've done that. I've done themes, um, and so you type that stuff in and you search for it. Now it's a lot easier. Um, I don't know if, uh, of course, when I was younger, it, it all came out of the book because we had to do the textbook. I mean, when I was, so I just did everything around like that textbook. But what I do now, a lot of times is I find out what the students want. So I might find something I find interesting, kind of like we were talking about the technology, for example, or what I did um, dreams or things like that. And then what I would do is put together a small little bitty unit, if you will, for about maybe two days, three days. I model what I'm going to do with it. And then I let the students choose and then I'll allow them to go out and find stuff. And so, um, so they find an argument. So a lot of my brainstorm or my listing that they do would be things that ideas opinions that they have and they list all of those things and then I might show them how I have I have an idea of something that I 
have a big opinion about. And then I'll search that up and I'll show them what's out there. And then, uh, so I will do one with them, so to speak. But I do that for my mini lessons. And that would be like a like a unit like you're talking about. If you have the uh, your arguments, for example, and you're arguing for technology against technology, the pros and cons, things like that. So I might show some of the students places where they can go do their own search based on the things that they are interested in. And then I create a unit that way. Uh, so I'll do my own unit, if you will. And I'll share with them and we'll do some talking about that. I might give them, if they need a strategy, I might give them a strategy with that. Uh, But we would read a few of my own articles and then they would follow up with things that they would want to do. They would do it on their own. I used to do this even in Texas history, you know, because I taught, I've taught all the different types of things, but in Texas history, we had to do document-based questions. So that was something we had to do. So I modeled how to find your document-based, you know, how to, how to read the articles and how to get your information out of those articles. And then I, we did another one where they actually had to go further and write about it. But then at the end, they found things that they were interested in when it came to Texas history, and they created their own document-based uh, questions. So they had to find their own articles, they had to find all of this, and then they had to write about it, and then they presented it. So I've done all kinds of different things. So when you're asking me where I get my stuff, I'm like you, Jacob, I don't do the same thing every year. So it's kind of hard, but I have repeated things. Like there's some things I'll go back. I keep um, I keep everything. I, I have a hard drive from all my stuff. It goes all the way back to when we had computers, which started in uh, well, some of the stuff in the 1990s I can't get to anymore, but I do have some stuff all the way. I know from 1998 to now, uh, and I can go back and search and see some of the things I did way back when. And uh, some of those things I might bring back. Uh, but as far as finding articles, I found them from Kelly Gallagher's articles. Because yeah, he has a set of, of articles. Article of the week. So I've done article of the week. I do a lot of news, Ella, like you said. For By the way, they like tweet that. out what they're doing all the time. Like Penny and Kelly, like uh-huh. they do, well, Kelly's not in the classroom anymore, but they, they do like their, they'll tweet out like what they're going to bring. Like they found an article. Penny does this all the time. She'll be like, oh, I found this mm-hmm. article. We're going to pair it with this. Like they, this stuff just kind of exists out there right. a little bit. But I, here's the right. here, and I want to, as you were talking, I had a thought. And I think okay. this. Okay. I don't know. It, I might be proven wrong in this as we discuss, but I feel like above all, right? I think we worry so much. We already talked about how we overfocus on strategy, but we worry so much about the the text. And the text is very important and it's very powerful. But I feel like what is the most important aspect to think about is what is it that kids need today to be better readers and writers, right? Because you can do this, like, even if you were a stock curriculum, even if you only could work out of the textbook, even if all you had access to was news ELA, right? And that you could only use those articles. Mm-hmm. You can do all of this. You can use anything. But what, what it comes down to is when you're focusing on something, it's, okay, what do my students need today? So if you're starting a unit in argument, my whole thing is what do kids need to know to really understand the core of what argumentative text is? Is it the hook? Is it how it's structured? Is it the fact that there's quotations when they're quoting other people? Is it narrative drive? You know, all of that stuff. And my answer to all that is no, those are the pieces to it. What I need kids to understand about argumentative is that someone is taking a stance on something and some they're trying to move you into agreement with whatever stance they have. That is the core of what I need them to understand at the beginning of an argumentative unit. And the text is secondary. It doesn't really matter. Like it does. And, you know, it obviously if kids are more connected to something, it's going to be a more powerful lesson. But at the core, if what I'm showing them gets them to understand the concept that we Mm -hmm. need to start with, then that's good. And I always start at the ground floor. And what you think is the ground floor might be different than me, but that that's almost irrelevant as well. It's the ground floor of the way you picture argumentative. So as an educator, if you're doing argumentative or nonfiction or whatever, you go, what, what's the basic knowledge we need from this? What do I need to show them? And by the end of this lesson, how am I going to know 
that they understand that core piece. Because if they don't have it, if they don't have a foundation, everything else you pile on top is going to be lost. So you got to get that first. And that's right. and on and that's where that's honestly how I think through every single unit, whether I'm planning with you, our partner, or just doing something willy-nilly on my own, as I often do. I start at that core and I go from there because if, if your foundation is not good enough, uh, it's going to get lost. And and so it, I think it's stress less about strategy and peace and think more about what do they need to know? Are they going to know it by, or how are you going to know they know it by the end of the lesson? I think, I think after that, then it's just semantics. Well, I think if that's really all we're narrowing it down to, then I think you need to probably get rid of everything we just said and only include this. <laughs> Well, it took 44 minutes to get to that point. <laughs> well, that's pretty much how it happens. Now, that, that's the thing is we're doing this podcast, like in actual writing, we would we would do all this, right? And then we would go in and only peel off what we don't need and yeah. keep what we do need. But I, I think you're right. I think I think if you can go and find exactly what those kids need for that particular genre that you're trying to do, uh, definitely uh, would, would do. I... I think that's where I try to get what those students, that's where I include my list of things where the kids write their own list of things they care about, things that they can take a stand against or for. And so that's kind of where I get that idea. And then from there, if they have their own opinion and they're very strong about that, then they can, they will have the experience. And then I go in and teach them about the genre. Like, and I feel like that is, that's such a powerful way of, of passing along agency to them. Because when I start a lesson and this, this is going into our, her other question too, which we can, as we kind of, you know, get to the, the last half of this episode, which is, you know, she asked, do you make mini, mini lessons and teach one text and then move on to the next one? Or do you show all the examples and then compare their approaches from the get go? I think for me, I talk about how I do a bunch of short lessons, but I never show every version of something at the start, unless it's something more wide with like kind of what you did when you looked at an anthology, but you were working on anthology. So even though you, they were looking at that, but that was a very specific thing when it comes to, if I wanted them to understand argument, for instance, in three different genres, I'm going to do, uh, depending on my students, I've done it as fast as one genre a day. And we just kind of went through it. I've extended it to where we did one genre for about two days, another genre for two days, another genre for two days. And then we went back and cross compared them and saw the benefits of that. Uh, and you can, you can do that whether it's, it's multi-genre or not. If you just want kids to be able to write a great argumentative essay, um, then you need to pick, I would say, start with your core argument that your core text that has pretty much everything you would like, like the, the bare minimum of what an argumentative text is, and then go from there uh, or from there, start extrapolating into different styles. That's really how the, honestly, that's how the multi-genre thing started is we started with a core argument. And then I was like, what, what else could we do here though? And then I got, you know, and I got interested and started pushing it out that way, went down a rabbit hole, so to speak, and started looking at different, uh, examples, but it started with that core thing. And I didn't, so the, the secret, if you just kind of shift a little bit is, I didn't have all of this planned through Monday through Friday when I did it. And I almost never do. I have the ideas and the no. standards planned out, but from text to text, sometimes I'm changing my text the morning of, and you've seen me do it. <laughs> I've seen you do that. And I think the first time that you were going to do this multi genre approach for argument, I think we were actually brainstorming in the office when we worked together in office, because you wanted to try this with your group. And we sat down and brainstormed how it could mm -hmm. work out. So I think I kind of remember that and you didn't have, I mean, that's the memory that just came up while you were talking and you didn't really know exactly how you were going to go about it. But I think you ended up doing technology is yeah. what you ended up doing. And we sat in there and we talked about all the stuff and then you came in and put it all together. I came and watched it. I remember watching it and the students really liked it. It reminded me of 
something that I used to do. And I, I had, I think I did it last. I actually, I do it all the time, but I was a little more purposeful in the past, but that was when they were focusing on genres all the time. And so I would have the students once they, they would pull out a piece of writing and I would say, okay, they would identify the genre that it was. Right. And then I would say, what else does this genre want to be? I got that from I think Dr. Carol and uh, her husband, actually Eddie uh, Wilson. And, and he said that to us one time. And so it worked. And so what I do with my participants and, and what I do with my students are uh, they might, I pull something out and so they may have a story and I said, well, what's another genre that it's really calling out to be. And so they would go, what do you mean? I said, well, just look at it. Can it be a poem? Can it be whatever? Just write whatever it's pulling you to do. And so then they would take it and they would, if you will, shift change it, you know, like what is it? The shift shapers, they would actually morph it into something else. And then sometimes that something else was way stronger than their original thought. And so uh, I would have my students do that. I used to do that all the time. And that's how we would hit the different genres just from their writing. And I did that a lot when I only taught English because my school where we were at before I met you, everything was divided. And so I taught English and I would do that with, with my English class to try to get them to write different genres. What I think is even a cool idea too um, and this is something I do often actually is sometimes I'll, we'll be focusing on a specific genre and I'll put forth that kids should be writing within the genre. They should be exploring it or whatever. And as they're writing other things, especially in something like argument that I fully believe can be in different, um, genres, I let them like, let's say I have a kid that's really writing, like they're, they want to write this short story, go for it. So when I sit with them, I'll actually sit with them and go, Hey, you know, I know you really weren't writing an argument and that's really wasn't your focus here, but it's what we're talking about. I'm like, what do you think this could be an argument for? And I'll almost let them discover that a lot of the times when we write, we are making an argument for something. It might, it might not be like an, like a intellectual argument, so to speak. Maybe it's an emotional argument for why you shouldn't like break a promise or something. You know what I mean? Like it could be any of those things. And I think letting them discover how these things live in their writing that they already do is an equally powerful, uh, moment in a conference or as a class or whatever is really being able to show them that like, I mean, literature analysis is really, you know, the uncovering of what are some of the psychoanalytical stuff in here that has embedded it's, it's existence into writing that maybe the author didn't think about, right? You know, we always point out like, oh, the authors, you know, we said it like Robert Frost was like, I don't even know what it's about. That's true. Uh, but as readers and stuff, the fun part about what we do is really discovering what it is. Half the time, I don't know what I believe until I speak it or write it anyway, right? Like it really does hone in your own thought process because you're taking something metaphysical and making it physical, right? You're adding it to the vibration of sounds with your voice or you're creating symbols that represent something on a page as a complex process by doing that you learn so much and you go through this process of self-discovery and if I can have kids write so much in my classroom to where now I can go hey you used this is a, a really good argument like for why you should take care of your little siblings or, you know, this is a really good argument as to, you know, why like your particular faith is something that's important. Right. And allowing that nuance to exist because kids are going to buy into it because they'll be like, I already did it. Right. You know what I mean? Like they'll be, (laughs) they'll be so excited. They're like, I don't even need your lesson Chastain. I'm already writing argument. That's fine. As long as they feel happy and want to write more then I don't care how ingenious they think they were, whether, but I feel like that's a, that's a, that's a small, way to really just let it go and trust the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I like to do that where the kids discover that they were doing it all along anyway. I think that's why I like them to go back into their writing, uh, things like that. But uh, there was another thought I had a second ago, and that was um, that when we mentioned TP Cast a while back, a lot of times I'll use a strategy like that. Like if I want to do that strategy, then I'll actually use that strategy as a pre-writing strategy, not necessarily as an analysis. Like they would analyze, but 
If I want them to write about literature, if I want them to write about it, then I use that sometimes as my pre-writing tool to get them to actually think about the text that they're reading in a way that's a little bit deeper than they would otherwise due to their uh, neophyte uh, reading capabilities, if you will. You know what I mean? Because we've got seventh graders, so they're not used to analyzing something in a deep, deep way. So to me, I would use a strategy. If I were to do a strategy, I just started thinking about this and that I would do it more as a writing, uh, pre-writing uh, strategy where they're actually going to write about a text, um, then I would use that something like TPCast or any of those things just to identify those parts in somebody else's writing so that I can actually analyze that writing, the reading uh, for myself so I can interpret it better. And that's, to me, a better way to use those strategies uh, it, for me. That's how mm-hmm. I would probably do it. Agreed. So uh, there's one more thing I want to hit on as we're uh, at the, the tail end of this thing, which is she has, Leah wrote in her email, she said, my trepidation of this type of teaching, oh, yeah. exploring craft moves instead of falling back on strategies is the amount of time to find really cool, relevant mentor texts. This line where she says, my trepidation of this type of teaching, I think this is the crux of uh, maybe some of the block that Leah might be having is fear of letting the process kind of go. And it's, and that's not a, a slight of any case. I, I, I do this all the time, right? I think when you are, when you're embracing something that we're trying to do, which is awaken a love for reading and writing, not just get to get, ki- to get kids competent in these things. We want those things to happen, right? We have, <laughs> we're teachers, like we have a job to do, but we are also trying to literally awaken someone's realization that man, reading can be really powerful. Writing can be really powerful. And these can be staples in my life forever, right? We want kids to understand that and to internalize that. And that comes with taking some of the school stuff away and letting kids messily read through a text and talk about it and understand it and writing text that are maybe they're really sloppy, right? Or maybe like we talked about in one of our last podcasts where one of my students who is, I mean, literally years behind in terms of reading ability, writing ability, everything else, he worked so hard on his little project and there was so much wrong with, like, if I just took it just as a, a blanket grade, I mean, it would have been a failure. It would have been horrible, but he, he took so much time into it. There were so many things that we could point out that he worked on and all these things, but I allowed that process to happen. I allowed his, where he was at to exist within a system that doesn't always let kids exist within that. And I think, I think kids discover so much love of reading and writing when we stop forcing everyone into to this box for the sake of progress. Progress can happen, but I think that word we need, it, it's more nuanced than I think um, a lot of systems allow us to be in a lot of our thinking. But Leah, you know, and, and a lot of other teachers, it sounds like she has the freedom to really explore this. She's doing craft and draft. She's listening to the show. She's implementing ideas. She's kind of doing all of these things. She's teaching three grade levels. I mean, this is the time to like, let your readers and writers, let them read and write. Let them write after reading an argument and see what they do. How well can they go and then kind of go from there? But this trepidation, like I, it's really hard to talk people out of that because it's it's a nerve-wracking thing to be like, oh my God, I'm trying something new. These are people's kids. I gotta have data. I have to do all of this. But trust the process. We are readers and writers by, by nature, kids want to make their marks. If they understand that words are powerful, they're going to want to use it. If they understand that reading applies to their lives, they're going to want to use it. And you have to just be, you have to, you know, it's almost like a faith walk, but it's not because there's research behind this, right? Donald Graves, Lucy Calkins, all of them have done this research and and farther back. Miss Ochoa literally uh, like at least three times a month mentions these researchers on the podcast, right? And so this, this stuff's out there. It's not like we're just being these, you know, hippie teachers over here in Texas saying, yeah, (laughs) just trust all the process. It's, it's let check fear at the door a little bit. And just go see what happens. Trust your students, alter as you go, and and empower them to to really understand these things and apply them to what they want to be applied to. 
Well, no, I have to, I have to agree. I mean, I think it is sometimes frightening to try something new. You're not sure how it's going to work out, but I think, um, I think it's better to try than not to. Uh, you mentioned the, where Leah talked about mentor text, but if they're reading every day, then you can use what they're reading as your mentor text as well. So I, I would just say go forth and and uh, find lessons anywhere you can get them, including, you know, like maybe pick up, uh, look at what your students are reading, see what they're reading, pick up a book that's similar to some of those, and then um, find some text off of some of those chapters. So there's all kinds of places where you can find mentor texts that are probably already in a room. So yeah, but uh, fear, I think, is definitely real. And I think that it can paralyze us. So I think if I wouldn't worry about maybe you're doing too many skilled lessons, because I think that's what she mentioned is doing a lot of skills. But just know that anytime you teach those students something, um, there are different types of lessons. So let me just, if you don't mind, many lessons, I'm getting this off of my, uh, Reading Workshop Primer by Dr. Carroll, but one of the things she says about lessons are that they're short lessons that set forth the concept, clarify the concept, reteach the concept, or serve some purpose set by the teacher when assessing the needs of the students. So, and then skills lessons are those that hone on the skills. So if either way, if you're doing anything at all, it looks like a lot of it can just you know, it's what the kids need. So I wouldn't worry about whether it's a skills lesson or a, um, any other type of lesson. As long as these students are getting what they need, I, I think you'll just grow uh, every day. Learn something new every day and and try it. Don't be afraid to try it. That's That's kind of my motto. Don't be afraid to try it. Well, and one last thing for Leah is she said that she already sees this growth happening. Her kids are always doing stuff. So I'm willing I'm willing to bet she's pulling a, a, a classic teacher move of saying, oh, my God, I want it to be better and better. And you stress out about it. But you're already doing great. You're doing, you're doing great. You're doing great. I tell Pam this every day. She'll come to me and be like, oh, my God, things are failing. I'm like, you're fine. You're doing do. great. <laughs> I do. I'll walk teacher. over there, Leah, and all of you in there. I'll, I'll go, okay, I'm a failed teacher today. He goes, you still have some more classes to do? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, then pick yourself up and do the other ones. That's so, right. Uh, usually it gets better as the day goes on. It happens to all of us. But ladies That's and gentlemen, right. this has been the Craft the Draft podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes. We drop an episode every single Friday. If you are unsatisfied, like Leah was, with one of our answers to someone's questions and you want to send us a long uh, response, you can do that. You can also just send us comments, concerns, thoughts, ideas, any types of questions. We love answering questions. Sometimes we just answer them quickly at the top of an episode. Sometimes we spend a whole hour uh, diving through your words. So you can do that at craftandjobworkshop.com. You can email or DM those to me on social media as well. Check us out on Facebook where we need to keep posting more. I swear we will do that one day. We have a million things going on. Thank you for listening. Check us out. Leave a review if you like this episode. But know that we are here. For you and Happy New Year. Happy New Year.